Good morning. It's so good to see some of our downstairs people are up with us today. Those of you that pray for our services every morning, we really appreciate that. Just before the service started, all of a sudden sound disappeared for our online broadcast. And then as we were continuing to pray, the Lord brought it back. So I'm always thankful for your prayers. Please be praying every week ahead of time for the service. And those of you that are watching online, um, special thanks to our tech team for making that happen and for our good God for making that possible today. On Valentine's Day, two weeks ago, we started a new sermon series called Relentless Love from the book of Hosea. This is a minor prophet. We don't often spend a lot of time in the minor prophets, and it's a tough subject. It's a difficult series to deal with, but it's God's Word. And we're taught that all of God's Word is inspired by Him, and it is all profitable for our correction, for our reproof, for training in righteousness. So we're committed at First Baptist Church to studying God's Word and studying all of it, the hard parts as well as the easy or um, parts that are just simple to read and say, oh, that just feels good to hear that. Sometimes we have to hear things that are difficult as well. I gave an overview of the book of Hosea, and this morning we're going to dive into chapter 1, which I've titled, An Impossible Marriage. So as we're getting started off, I'm going to share with you 12 rules for a happy marriage. As you listen to these, you can vote if you think these are from the Bible. So, okay, so as you're listening to these 12 things, the first one, never both be angry at once. In the Bible? Not in the Bible. Never yell at each other unless the house is on fire. That's a good rule. I don't think I read that in the Bible. Remember that it takes two to make an argument. The one who is wrong is the one who will be doing most of the talking. Have you experienced that? Number four. Yield to the wishes of the other as an exercise in self-discipline if you can't think of a better reason. If you have a choice between making yourself or your mate look good, choose your mate. Biblical? If you feel you must criticize, do so lovingly. Biblical? Never bring up a mistake of the past. Biblical. Neglect the whole world rather than each other. Never let the day end without saying at least one complimentary thing to your life partner. Never meet without an affectionate greeting. When you've made a mistake, talk it out and ask for forgiveness. And number, number 12, never go to bed mad. A bunch of these are clearly biblical, but it was actually from an old posting or an old article from Ann Landers of how to have a happy marriage. I think they're all still good things to follow, but a lot of them come from the Bible. God's Word has truth for our lives that we need no matter where we are in our life. No matter what stage of life we're in, there's things that we need to hear from God's Word. So that was something fun just to get us, get us started as we talk about something heavy, which is this impossible marriage. If you have lunch later with your spouse, you can talk about these 12 and see which ones you liked, which ones you want to put a star next to, maybe as a little encouragement to your spouse to do that even more, and maybe there's some that you might want to add. The major themes, as we talked about in Hosea, and these are the things we're going to be seeing in the upcoming weeks, are Israel has rebelled. God will bring consequences for their sin and their idolatry. And then we see God's relentless love and mercy. And ultimately, there is hope for redemption. There's healing. There's restoration. Not only for the people of Hosea's day, but for anyone looking for hope today. Anyone looking for restoration. Anyone looking for forgiveness. You can find that in our great God. I'm going to read the first chapter 
and I'm probably not going to read it as quickly as Greg Frank read last week, but you can follow along with me on the screen or in your copy of God's Word, whatever format that is for you. Hosea chapter 1. It's just a little bit past... not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. We learn very little about Hosea in this first verse. His father's name was Beery. It's the only time we hear his name. Hosea's ministry as a prophet to Israel spanned the reigns of at least six kings of Israel. And while Uzziah to Hezekiah were kings in Judah in the southern kingdom, Hosea was prophesying to the northern kingdom, to Israel, and that's unique. His name, Hosea, means salvation, or more specifically, Jehovah saves. It's a variation of Joshua, which we would know as Yeshua, which in Greek was Jesus. If you were not with us two weeks ago, I would recommend to you that you go back and watch or listen to the introductory message from February 14th. And you can find that on our Facebook page, you can find it on our YouTube page, or on our church website as well. So go back and listen. I'm not going to go over all those background things because today I really want to dive into chapter 1 and look at this impossible marriage. I'm breaking chapter 1 down as I read through it, into four main points. First, we see God's command. Then we're going to see Hosea's response. We're going to see three children born from this marriage. And then, thankfully, after all of this rough news, we hear God's reminder of his promise. If you like to take notes and you pull out your bulletin, there's a note sheet on the back side of the insert and you can fill in some blanks and you can write some things. There's never enough room there, as I learned last week, trying to take notes with Greg Frank having to write sideways and in the margin. So I feel your pain for that. You can get a little notebook and put it in your Bible and you can always take extra notes there. So first of all, we have God's unbelievable command. As we talked about in the introduction, this is a book of prophecy, and it's written in the style of poetry. So Hosea is telling stories. He's using allegory, and he's using his actual life to give illustrations of God's relationship with his people, and he does that through marriage. God tells his prophet, Hosea, 
to provide a living example for all to see. Verse 2 says, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, a wife who is a whore. Wait, what? This is a prophet, a holy man of God. Take a wife who is known as a whore. We find our foundation in God's word all the way back in the book of Genesis. And if you want to turn there to chapter 2 with me, we're going to see what God's plan for marriage was. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, then I'm going to jump down to verses 20 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. God's plan for marriage, right from the very beginning, as he created the first man and the first woman, was that... Man or mankind would not be alone. He created us to live in community, to live in fellowship with other people, just as he created us to live in fellowship and community with him. We're created to be people who need people. And that's one of the great blessings of us being able to be here this morning. It's one of the blessings that I took for granted for the first 53 years of my life. Oh yeah, we just go to church and we get to see people and we sing and we hear God's word. And then last year, we didn't get to do that. We experienced something that people around the world have experienced for thousands of years, 2,000 years, where church was illegal. It was not something you were allowed to do. So we suffered through time where we had to just be alone and watching one another on a screen. And now we're, I'm thankful that we're able to be here physically, in community, in fellowship with one another. We need that. The man needed a companion. He needed a partner. And that was so vivid to Adam as he named all of the animals coming by him. Mr. and Mrs. Otter. Mr. and Mrs. Zebra. Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe. And he got to the end and he said, where's my Mrs.? None of these are like me. And God provided for him a companion a helper, someone who was fit for him, someone who was good for him. Good we think of as average, right? So there's good, better, and best. But good through Genesis is perfect. God created the heavens and the earth, and he said, it is good. Over and over again, he was saying, this is good. What I've done is good. It's just what I wanted. And God provided someone to go through life with Adam, and it was good. It's meant to teach us about intimacy, about being transparent. They were naked in front of each other, and they were not ashamed. They could share everything with each other, and that's the relationship God wants with us. He wants us to share everything with him, and through his word, he reveals himself as much as we could possibly understand. He's so much more than we can know and understand incompleteness while we're here on earth. But someday we will see him face to face, and that's going to be a whole amazing day. So why, 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 why would God tell this holy prophet, his spokesman for earth, to marry a woman of whoredom, which literally means an unfaithful wife, or sometimes a prostitute, someone who would use money and use her body for money 
How could this possibly be the right woman for him? The answer is right here in verse 2 of Hosea. It's an illustration. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You, Israel, my people, have been unfaithful to me. You're committing adultery by chasing after everything else except me. I'm the God who loved you, that brought you out of Egypt, that did all these amazing things demonstrating my love for you, and you're chasing after idols? You think that's going to satisfy you? These false gods in the world around you just so you can be like the people around you? The grass is always greener on the other side, right? So Israel's looking and saying, look how happy all these people around us are. Let's go follow after their fake gods instead of the true God. And God says, you are committing adultery. You're walking away from your husband who loves you. That's the illustration. The normal custom in this day, in that day, was to marry a virgin, someone who kept herself pure before marriage, and there was great stock and value placed on a woman of virtue. And we see that all through the Old Testament stories as the um, sister of the original group of men in, I'm losing names because I'm ad-libbing right now. I just lost it. Somebody tell me whose sister was raped. Tamar. Tamar. So the brothers go and wipe out this whole town, this whole city, everybody there. They kill them just because their, their sister was dishonored before marriage. By commanding Hosea to marry a woman who has already sinned, has already been sexually active, God's merciful love is vividly demonstrated. God wants to show us that same mercy because he says, I love you in spite of your sin. It's not because you're perfect. It's not because you're doing everything right that you're welcome to have a relationship with me. I'm loving you in spite of who you are, in spite of your sin. And in marriage, God calls us to love our spouse in spite of their sin, just as we hope that they will love us in spite of our sin. This is meant to be biblical or godly love, agape love. It's unconditional. And God says, that's how I want you to see the marriage relationship. A good test for humility, for mercy in your marriage is this. Do I see my own sin and the need for forgiveness or am I totally focused on what my wife is doing wrong? When I think about our relationship, is it, if you would only do this, then everything would be great? Or am I thinking, if I could only fix this, we'd be making great strides in our relationship? And this is something we can take not only in marriage, but to all of our relationships. How often do we look at someone else and say, they're just bugging me. They're so annoying. Why do they keep doing that? And we don't think about the things that we're doing. We're blind to our own sin. We're blind to our own failures. God wants us to see that mercy that he shows us and be merciful to other people. And he gives this example of this impossible marriage. Remember, Hosea's name literally means salvation. God's message through the prophet is that he's offering forgiveness. He's offering redemption. When we're sinners, because we're unable to meet his absolute standards of righteousness, Romans 3.23, which so many of you know by heart, reminds us that we have all sinned. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We cannot measure up to his righteousness. And then Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our act, to show up at church, to try and be good enough to say, good, finally, 
You get it. Now you're welcome to be part of my family. God says, you're never going to be good enough. But I love you and I will forgive you if you trust in the name of my son, Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel, that it's all God reaching out to us and saying, come join my family. All we have to do is accept that gift, accept that mercy, accept that love and that forgiveness. It sounds easy, but it's hard, isn't it? In our pride, we don't want to accept something we feel like we haven't done to deserve. God is calling out to the nation of Israel and saying, I love you in spite of who you are. Next in Hosea, we see his immediate response. Verse 3, so he went and he took Gomer. Hosea didn't wait around. He didn't ask God questions. We just heard from the book of Job how Job had a lot of questions for God. And he came to God and said, what about this? What about that? And God patiently answered him over many, many chapters to say, what about this? What about that? Were you there when I did this? Do you know who I am? Job. He let him ask all those questions. But here's Hosea and he, I've got nothing. I'm just going to obey you, God. Isn't that amazing to have that kind of obedience to God? I wish I did that. Every time I open God's word, there's life-giving words in it. Follow me. Be like Jesus. Do these things. And I fight them because I think, I want to do these. These are easy for me to do. But these don't fit my personality. That's just too hard. I'm not going to do that stuff. Why do we do that? God says, follow me. Pick up your cross, as Jesus said, and follow me. It's going to be hard. Discipleship means getting rid of some things in your life. Following Jesus means getting rid of the sin that drags us down. God calls us to obey him. Hosea doesn't say, what about my neighbors? What are they going to say? What about my parents, my mom and dad? What are they going to think when I bring this woman to dinner, the Passover dinner when we're all gathered together at family and we're sitting around the table and everybody looks over and like, Who's Jose, who does Hosea have with them? Gomer? Really? And they're whispering and talking. Everybody knew what her reputation was. Hosea simply obeyed God because that's the correct response. Jeremiah 723, you don't have to turn there. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. God's word, as I said before, is life-giving words. When we obey him, there's so many things in our lives that are just going to go better because we're doing, us, we're doing what God's told us to do. We're still going to run into problems. We're still going to sin. We're still going to fail. We're still going to experience the sin of the world around us. But when we're obeying God, we reduce so many of the problems in our lives just by automatically doing what we're supposed to do. 1 Samuel 15, 22, we hear to obey is better than sacrifice. Listen to God. Are you obeying God in every area of your life? Have you taken stock? Or like me, do you pick and choose the ones that seem easy and then say, yeah, I'll get to those other ones later? The things that make sense. We read the Bible and it's like, yeah, that makes sense. I'll do that. Or that fits my lifestyle, but that, giving up that, come on. That's too much. God wants our hearts. He wants our obedience to his word more than following religious traditions, more than showing up every Sunday and being seated in your most comfortable spot. The outward displays, the things that other people can see are not what God is after. He wants our hearts, a heart that says, I love you like you love me and I want to follow you. Life as a follower of Jesus is a life of obedience and it's a life of submitting to his will, not our own. 
And that's what Jesus said right before the cross. Father, if there's any other way, that would be great. But it's not about what I want. That was his humanness talking, right? This is going to be horrible. This is going to be the most excruciating death. Is there any other way? And he said, but not my will, but yours, Father. Are you submitting to the will of God? This is the will of God, in case you're wondering. No matter how old you are, if you're in college thinking, what do I do next? If you're in high school thinking about, what do I do after this? If you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, wherever you are, if you're wondering, what does God want me to do? It's here. His will is revealed in his word. The next illustration God uses is the family of Hosea and Gomer. The names of their children are each part of the message that God is sharing. And it's not just words, it's the name of his children. Every time he calls them to dinner, every time they're out playing in the street with their friends and they call them to dinner, everybody's going to hear these names. Sometimes we have to dig for meanings of names. But here God just tells us right out what they mean. It's so clear. The first one in verse 3 and 4. She conceived and bore him a son, and the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. This took a little digging when I said it's obvious. It takes time to look back and see where Jezreel comes up. It's a town. It's a valley in Israel. And it had a violent and bloody history. In 1 Samuel 29, Israel was prepared for a disastrous battle with the Philistines. And that's exactly what they experienced. Then later, Naboth was murdered in, his vin- in the vineyard of Jezreel by the evil queen Jezebel. That was in 1 Kings 21. And then over in 2 Kings 9 and 10, Jehu killed Joram, Jezebel, and Ahab's entire household and their supporters. The judges, Deborah and Gideon, fought great battles in Jezreel. So there's a lot of fighting, there's a lot of blood being spilt in Jezreel. When you hear, depending on how old you are, when you hear the word Chernobyl, what do you think of? Who's never heard that word? Be honest, raise your hand. You never heard Chernobyl. You can admit it. It's okay. It was a really long time ago. It was in the 80s. So I was amazed, of course, at how long it was. But Chernobyl, Ukraine, was the site of the worst nuclear disaster ever. And there were years and years and years of pain and suffering as a result of that. So we hear that name of that town, and you would not think, hey, when we finally get to travel again, maybe by fall of 2021, maybe spring of 2022, let's get the family together and go to Chernobyl. Wouldn't that be great? Feel bad for the people in Chernobyl, right? For the tourism bureau who's getting together saying, how can we kind of get our town noticed on the map? Well, they already did that, but it's not to bring guests. Jezreel would have brought that same kind of thought to someone of Israel, thinking through history, thinking about all these things that happened in this valley. Lots of death, lots of destruction. It also means God will sow. So as people think about God sowing, they might think about a bountiful harvest. They might think about God being the one who causes the plants to grow instead of the fertility gods in the nations around them. It also may refer to sowing as in scattering seed. And so we'll see that in a little bit. God was scattering seed in the valley. He scattered his people and they were spread out throughout all the surrounding areas. In verses 4 and 5, we hear a little bit of that. God said, I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So we've got the bloody fighting. We've got the possibility of scattering. I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. They're going to go to war and their bows are broken. They're snapped in half. They've got no defense. They can't fight back. 
they're going to be destroyed, unable to protect themselves. She conceived again in verse 6 and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, because I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them. Those of you that know my daughter Grace, her name makes me think of Grace. Think of God's love for me. When we're singing Amazing Grace, it makes me think of my daughter. And it makes me smile just singing the song because it has her name in it. But imagine no grace, no mercy, harsh, uncaring, merciless judgment. Israel was used to God protecting them. And at this particular time in their history, they were experiencing prosperity. They had peace with the nations around them, but they would be punished. God is telling them, judgment is coming, and you will not see my mercy. Verse 7 says, I will, But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. It's a reminder of God's sovereignty. Exodus 33, 19, God said to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Romans 9, the Apostle Paul explains God's sovereignty in choosing or calling out a certain people. We see the idea of adoption, of God electing people and choosing people to be adopted into his family. And Paul quotes Malachi saying, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. God was talking not just about those two men, those two brothers, but he's talking about their descendants. The descendants of Jacob became the Israelites, the chosen ones. And the descendants of Esau were the Edomites who were not chosen. God is showing this distinction between loved, unloved, chosen, unchosen. God's forgiveness and mercy are poured out but they're based on his great plan and they're not based on our deserving actions. So we can say, how could God not love Esau? Well, think about all the horrible things that Jacob did. Did either of them deserve God's love and choosing? Neither of them did. God chooses who he's going to show mercy to. And then in verses 8 and 9, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. God explains this because you are not my people. You've walked away from me and I am no longer your God. As you go talking to people down the street, you can't say, that's the God I worship. There's the temple. That's my God. You can't say that because you've walked away from me. You're no longer my people. You've strayed. You're no longer worshiping in the temple as I've called you to. You're instead worshiping the idols of your neighbors. Sometimes the idols you've made with your own hands. How could you possibly think that this piece of wood with some gold hammered on it is going to do something for you when you made it? How can you worship things of your own creation? I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who protected you, who gave you this land. How could you possibly be unfaithful to me? You are no longer my people. And again, think about that boy being called for supper. Hey, not my people. Dinner time. Who? Am I, am I part of the family or am I not part of the family? This is like the middle child, right? I'm not, not the chosen one. I'm not the loved one. But it's actually the youngest. Not my people. Not part of the family. That had been pretty painful for those kids growing up with those names. First day of class, what's your name? Grace, blessings, no mercy, not my people. Boy, your parents really loved you. Pain, 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 from adultery to unfaithfulness to children whose names continually remind the people of Israel, of how they've walked away from God. 
But then God ends with this beautiful ending in verses 10 and 11. It's a 180. It's a complete turnaround. It's a reminder of God's promise. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. It's exactly what God said to Abraham. If you were here for our Genesis study, in chapter 22, God said, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. There's hope for the future. Not just that Israel would become a great nation and that they'd have so many people that you couldn't even count them. But there was God's redemption plan. Through you, the whole world, all the nations will be blessed. The Messiah will come through you, Israel. And he will bring healing to all the nations. He will offer redemption, forgiveness. He will offer mercy and grace. And he will say, come be my people. Jesus Christ came to restore people who were lost in sin, separated from their God. So instead of being known as not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. In John 1, 12 and 13, this was said about Jesus. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Becoming a child of God, becoming adopted in his family, comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not based on your nationality. It's not based on how wealthy your parents were. If your family founded this church, it's not your birthplace. It's not your good works. Only by believing in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, as he wraps up the chapter, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one king and they will go up from this land and great will be the day of Jezreel. God is foretelling that these two tribes, these northern and southern kingdoms will be joined together again and they will be under one king. And this will be a great day for Jezreel, not the son of Hosea, but for the people of that valley, the people who had experienced all this bloodshed, all this scattering. Now they're going to be drawn together. And hundreds and hundreds of times through the Old Testament, it's talking about the day of the Lord. For them, it was talking about the Messiah coming on that day, when the Messiah comes and is revealed, he will save or deliver Israel. In the New Testament, the day of the Lord is talking about Christ's return. And we know that he's going to come and rapture his church, rapture believers before the great tribulation. And then there's another day of the Lord when he comes and stands in Jerusalem and begins a thousand-year reign. Prophecy has often multiple fulfillments. So when we read something and we see it, we have to think about who is it hearing this message? What time period were they in? And what are they looking forward to? So we can't go back and say, oh great, our nation is going to be gathered together. America is going to be united under one king. That's not a promise made to us. That's something that was made specifically to Israel. So where we are today, we're looking forward to the return of Christ. The day of the Lord is the rapture of the church. Are we going to be ready? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you accepted his mercy? Have you become one of his people, a son or daughter in his family? You can do that only through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to be ready for his return and not be left behind. We see several startling contrasts in this first chapter of Hosea. 
And I'm just going to quickly conclude with these points before our takeaways. Hosea's impossible marriage is a picture of God's relentless love. God asked his prophet to marry an unholy woman known for her shameless sin, known for her immorality. And before we're quick to judge Gomer, remember, if God had not taken the initiative to reach out to you and to call you to be a son or daughter, you'd be in that same condition. He sent his own son to pay for your sins, for my sins, to make us righteous so that we wouldn't be as hopeless as Gomer. This impossible marriage is a picture of God's relentless love, how much he loves you as he's calling you to be his son or daughter. Secondly, we see God's opposite responses to the ugliness of sin. He talks about judgment. He talks about no mercy. He says, you're not my people. He talks about this valley of Jezreel where you're going to be in war and scattered and judged. But then he talks about restoration. Talks about his steadfast love. Joining them back together again. Fulfilling those promises that he made to them. How do we understand this dichotomy? How do we see God in just one chapter going from judgment to mercy? God is holy and absolutely pure, and he hates sin. His judgment of sin is just, and it's deserved. The penalty for sin is death, separation from God, and we're all born already separated from God. He warns everyone who treats their sin lightly or excuses their behavior, their small lapses of judgment, It was just an indiscretion. We use all kinds of words instead of saying sin. When we call our sin, sin, when we use biblical terms and say it was adultery, it wasn't an affair. Affair sounds nice. Adultery sounds rough and painful because that's what God called it. When we say lying, I lied, forgive me for lying, that's better than saying Forgive me for just that little slip. We knew what we were doing, but we excuse it. Call your sin what it is, especially when you're confessing it to God and when you're confessing it to someone else. We are born sinners. We're unable to clean ourselves up. We're unable to be presentable to God. And the only remedy is God's provision of a Savior. In God's love and mercy, he doesn't force anyone to be part of his family. He doesn't make anyone accept that gift. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Respond to God's invitation. Scripture says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son will not see life and the wrath of God remains on him. We can't talk about God and just talk about his love and say, isn't it great? God loves you so much. Just come to church and feel the love. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the real God. The real God says sin is ugly. It hurts people and it hurts him, the one who created you, who loves you. And he says, you can be forgiven, you can be restored, but it's on my terms. It's not based on what you feel like doing or how you want to do it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're ready to do that, if you're here today, if you're watching online and you want to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and know his love, come talk to me. I'd love to help you take that next step. We have a couple of takeaways and these are just questions for you to think about. Do you see yourself as a good person? If you ask 99 people if they're going to go to heaven, most of them will say, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. But when I compare myself to God's standard and say, have I ever lied? Have I ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? 
Have I ever cheated someone? Have Have I ever wanted what someone else had? Have I ever committed adultery? Have I ever stolen something? We're going to see that we are sinners and we're not really all that good. God says none of us are good. And he says we're self-righteous when we try without him. When you hear about someone like Gomer, a public sinner, we've had some of our Christian leaders in the news lately who sinned. Do we judge them and say, look what that person did? I can't believe it. They were in such a great position and they sinned. How can I say that when I know I'm not going to make it through before lunch without a sin? Jesus said, look at your hearts. You're sinning in your heart by your thoughts and by your desires, even without publicly letting them known, be made known, without doing something You are sinning just by denying him. Instead of judging other people on their sin, are you amazed by God's mercy and the way that should affect the way you treat other people? Loving them, showing them mercy and grace in spite of their sin, in spite of my sin. Maybe you think your marriage is impossible. Think about Hosea and his marriage. Did God say, get rid of her? Well, you have to come back and hear the rest of the story. See what happens. God calls us to show his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace, even when your spouse doesn't show them to you. Jesus said what's impossible with man is possible with God. So wherever you are in your marriage, in your relationship, pre-marriage, post-marriage, recognize that God is with you through your trials and he wants you to glorify him by your response instead of choosing what you think is fair and what's going to make you happy. Do you struggle with God's sovereignty over everything and everyone? Sometimes I can handle God's sovereignty in my own life and say, yeah, I think I can handle that. But when it comes to my kids or my grandson and think that's just not right, why is God doing that? And we question God and his goodness because we don't understand what's going on. We don't know the big picture. And sometimes we never will. As we read through scripture and as we saw two weeks ago, Apostle Paul said some of the things that happened to the people in the Old Testament were just to give you illustrations of God's faithfulness. They lived through difficulties so that you could say, God is good. God is faithful. I can trust that God. You may have an illness that has nothing to do with your sin, has nothing to do with you specifically, but it may prepare you to show Compassion to someone who is facing the same illness years later. God is sovereign over everything, and we can trust him. And when he says, when we know it's hard to trust him, he says, just ask me for wisdom. Ask me for courage. Ask me for strength, and I will give it to you. I'll help you even in trusting. We heard about Job last week. Job said, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I looked for a good word to replace thwarted, but that's, that's the best word. You can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No one can stop God's plan. The question is, do you recognize that what's happening in your life and in the life of the people around you, the people you love, that they too are part of God's plan. And say, God, you are good. You're in control and I'm going to trust you through this. Help me to glorify you. If you're suffering, if you're worrying about the future, if you're facing a long-term illness, if you have disappointments in your life that are just feeling like they're too much to bear, when you recognize that God is in control, that nothing surprises him, We see in 1 Corinthians 10, 
that he's not going to give us more than we can handle. He's not going to give us temptations to disobey him to the point where we can't endure that temptation. He's never going to leave you, even on the darkest of days, even when you feel like giving up. God said, I will be there and I will see you through. And then finally, do you glorify God when things are going well or do you glorify them in your difficulties? My brothers, be joyful in your trials. Be joyful in your temptations because God is producing endurance and patience and strength and courage. He's doing a great work in you. Be thankful that he's doing that. Glorify God by responding to him in obedience, by letting people know that he's the one in control and you're not. You're not trying to do this all on your own. We can ask God for the wisdom we need. We can ask him for the strength so that we can trust him, that we can praise him as the Holy Spirit transforms you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate good that God, God is doing in any circumstance. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, he's going to keep working on you through his spirit to make you more and more like his son. So we can look at whatever day, whatever the trials today brings and says, God, you've brought this, you've allowed this, this is happening, how can I become more like Jesus? How can I respond in a way that honors and glorifies you? Was this an impossible marriage? It sure looks like it from a human perspective. But God said, Hosea, do this. Give an example to Israel. Give an example to the people of 2021 that they can know and trust in you no matter what is happening. Mark's going to come and we're going to sing our closing song about God's unfailing love. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the life of Hosea. Thank you for his willingness to obey you right away, to not question you. And I just pray, Lord, as we read and learn more about this prophet from so many years ago and see his response to his life and the things that happened, that we know that we can love and trust you, that we can find mercy and forgiveness, that we can find restoration and healing, and ultimate, we can find salvation in you. He who is the blessed and only sovereign God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can ever see. To him be honor and glory and eternal dominion in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.